So, so this morning I want to talk about the relationship between mindfulness and what in Buddhist tradition is called papancha. Papancha is a term which is usually translated as conceptual proliferation. P-A-P-A-N-C-A. And so it's looking at the tendencies of our attention, of our mind, to go somewhat uh, wild or to go somewhat out of control, to proliferate with certain kinds of experiences when they occur. And a large part of the intention of mindfulness practice is to be able to come more back to the awareness of what we're experiencing directly and to be able to notice the difference between a more direct experience, let's say, of an emotion, of our body, and then the various interpretations which often proliferate. To notice the difference and to be able to see whether that proliferation is helpful or not to our experience. So it's a large part of our practice is being able to make that distinction. It doesn't mean we don't use interpretations or we don't go beyond direct experience. We do. We, we necessarily do in certain ways. But it's very important to have a wisdom about all the interpretations, the assumptions, the stories that fill our consciousness and to train to know the difference between them and a more direct experience. So that's the theme I want to explore Uh, this morning, and partly by taking us back to really the core psychology or the core way that that, uh, mindfulness meditation works, and partly by exploring the different ways that we, in a sense, uh, get lost in the stories. And my hope is that uh, we are encouraged to, or maybe inspired, to really look at this theme in the next week. My, there's a lot that we can explore and talk about in relation to mindfulness and papancha. And I'm going to give some, um, some basic framework uh, today and also give a sense of how, to, uh, how we might practice with our investigation of papancha, of stories and interpretations, and so that we might have some way of, in the next week, exploring in daily life how how papancha manifests and how we might practice with it. So I'll I'll talk about that near the end of of the talk. And um, my my thought is is to continue with the theme next week as well, because it's a big one, it's a very crucial one. And it's a, it's a fascinating one because it's really about the investigation of the nature of how our minds work and what the relationship is between those workings of the mind and our moving towards freedom. So it's a powerful and, and beautiful topic. So first, a few words on mindfulness. And then I'll talk about how when we're... Uh, encountering the world when we have experience, how we typically start to proliferate ideas, concepts, interpretations. 
But first it's good to remember some of the qualities of mindfulness because mindfulness is in a way taken as the major tool both through which we can investigate the mind, experience, the nature of uh, proliferation, and also uh, how it's a tool that helps us to work through the to work through such proliferation so that we come more to live in mindfulness. That mindfulness as this direct ability to be present is taken to be a much more reliable way to live with wisdom and compassion. So first, uh, a few reminders of the nature of mindfulness. And I brought in some passages. And I wanted just to read a few of these to remind us of some of the nature of mindfulness. It's really the the quality that we most uh, emphasize here and that we cultivate when we meditate. This is from a commentary to the teachings of the Buddha, an explanation of mindfulness from the text called the Abhidhamma. Mindfulness signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present, rather than the faculty of memory. It has the characteristic of not wobbling. Technical term. Not wobbling. (laughs) That is, not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. I'll read one other passage from, this is from Joseph Goldstein, from the book that he co-authored with Jack Kornfield, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. Mindfulness is fullness of mind. In this fullness of attention, there are no barriers, no exclusions. It includes and encompasses every aspect of experience. The characteristic of mindfulness is one of non-superficiality. It is penetrative and profound. If we are mindful of an object, our awareness will sink deeply into it. As long as mindfulness is present, the object of observation is kept in view. We are not forgetful or half-hearted in our attentiveness. The mind comes face-to-face with the object with directness, focus, depth, and sensitivity. Mindfulness also manifests as a protection, because when we are mindful, we are protected from the force of the conditioned habits of grasping, conditioning, and forgetfulness, which create pain and confusion in our lives. So, to summarize, there, one of the qualities of mindfulness is this directness. It's an ability to be directly with experience, to be with anger without as much as possible, any filters, just to be with the anger, to be, to feel what it's like in the body, to notice as much as possible without interpretations, to be with joy, to be with particular body sensations and so forth. So there's a directness. There's also a quality of being able to stay with the object. As we strengthen in mindfulness, we learn... I was... I just wobbled. I was going to say we don't wobble, and I just wobbled. So um, we learn not to um, 
we learn to stay with the object. We have the power of attention to stay with a given object. So we can be with, let's say, unpleasant physical sensations, and we stay with it. The power of stability of mind lets us stay with the object for increasingly a sustained time. There's also a quality in mindfulness of non-reactivity. That is, we can be with whatever's happening increasingly without either pushing it away or grabbing hold of it. And that's pretty significant. So in that sense, uh, mindfulness is non-judgmental. It just is present. And when we are judgmental, we can be mindful of that. We can be mindful of the judgments. So mindfulness in, in itself doesn't have that quality of, I don't like this, or uh, I want this, I want to grab this and take this. And of course, a large part of our training in mindfulness is to see how we do either grab, hold, or push away. That's a lot of what we practice when we sit here. We just sit here and notice that over and over and over again. And so if that's happening in our experience, that's quite um, important and helpful. It's not like we're... The, the aim of mindfulness is to see what's happening in the moment. It's not so much to sit here with bliss and peace. Sorry to say that. Those of you who immediately want to leave, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> but, but the aim is really to see clearly. There is, when the mind is very settled, there can be that sense of peace and bliss, but the, really the direct intention is to just notice what's happening in the present moment and, to, and to, to, to come to that um, ability to be present. There's also, I think, in a mature mindfulness, a quality of warmth or kindness. That, that mindfulness is not just this cold, clinical, objective stance, but there's a quality of warmth or kindness in a mature mindfulness. There's, in other words, the heart's present, that, that, uh, that sense of mindfulness which... Um, I, which, which is um, very well expressed in uh, the Chinese way to express mindfulness, which I like to, I like to talk about, uh, that the Chinese character for mindfulness involves both present moment and home, a composite of home and heart, two, two characters suggesting home and heart. So the, the way the Chinese would understand mindfulness is finding a home for the heart in the present moment. <coughs> finding a home for the heart in the present moment, which is quite, to me that's very inspiring, but it suggests that there's a warm quality in mindfulness. And then the last quality I want to mention about mindfulness is that there is a connection with wisdom. As we notice more, we start to see things. We notice what is helpful. We notice uh, patterns that maybe are not so useful. I like to talk about how when I first started meditating, I was an inveterate planner. And I would notice myself planning over and over and over again, just sitting there. And it was kind of stunning for me. If someone had asked me before I was started to meditate, do you plan a lot? I probably would have said, normal amount. But when I looked carefully, it actually was a lot. And way more than I thought actually was necessary. It was actually a kind of a mm, habit, or almost like a strategy maybe to gain security that I had developed in my life. And to come to mindfulness, let me see that. Let me see that uh, 
quality of planning happening over and over again. And as I saw it more clearly with mindfulness, wisdom arose, which was that I don't need to plan all the time. Planning half the time would be perfectly adequate. Uh, and of course, I, I learned I don't have, didn't have to plan half the time. That I could, that I could still keep the planning function, but that the I could both see that the planning was filling up my mind and taking a lot of my attention, in a way, taking my life. I could also see that I could plan quite well, doing a, mo- a lot less. And as I looked more deeply, I could also see that there was some kind of anxiety as it were, beneath that urge to plan. So all of those, I would say, help me to live more wisely. And so mindfulness does have that connection with wisdom. What we do with mindfulness is to bring it to every experience. We bring it to the whole range of our experience. We notice our emotions, we notice our thinking, we notice our bodily experiences. And as we do so, we begin to notice certain patterns. And we begin to see, for, particularly in terms of the theme of today, we begin to be able to distinguish between that more direct experience of thoughts and emotions and the body and all of our interpretations and stories. And again, interpretations and stories have a place, but for many of us, they dominate us. And there's a way, and they also often take us away from living wisely and compassionately. And so, with mindfulness, we really start a kind of investigation of how our experience works. How do I use the interpretations and stories in my life? What are they? You know, how... Do I, how does my mind take a particular a momentary experience, like someone says one word to me, and then I go for the next three hours, I go somewhere with it. Or how even in my meditation, I'm sitting here and I notice that I'm a little sleepy, for example. And I might say, you know, this was like the example I was doing with Marty, I might say, I'm sleepy. I should have had more sleep last night. Maybe I'm not a good meditator. Maybe I shouldn't come on Wednesdays. Maybe the Friday class with <laughs> yoga and meditation would be a lot better. Yeah, I haven't been doing yoga for a while. I should really, I should really do it. Well, where should I do it? Should I do it to Spirit Rock? Or maybe that yoga studio is closer to my house. And <laughs> is, this, is this at all familiar? <laughs> And so, what we do is we study that process. We study where we go, we study the interpretations, and we, again, over time, we see which of those are wiser and which of them, in a way, get in the way, and what, which of them keep us distracted a lot of the time. And so, there's a, there's a way that this is a very direct way to work with our experience. In the... Buddhist psychology, or in the psychology given by the Buddha, there's a very, very simple model that points to how interpretations and stories arise. 
There's the model that uh, many of you know, because I, I taught it for several weeks about a year ago, uh, the model called uh, dependent arising, which is the probably the most detailed account of the genesis of suffering on the one hand and the genesis of freedom on the other. And in that model of dependent arising, which was, the Buddha said, the key insight, it expresses the key insight on his night of awakening. And so for many people, this is the central teaching of the Buddha. And I won't go into the whole of the model, but part of the model looks at really the basic way that experience occurs in a very, very simple way, in a very, very um, elementary way. One way to talk about this model is to say that in the model, there's uh, a pointing to that which we bring to every experience. Then there's a pointing to what happens in the moment of experience and then the consequences of each moment of experience. And the model actually has those three parts. First, what we bring to experience. Secondly, the uh, actual occurrence of every moment of experience. And then thirdly, the consequences of how we have responded. And I'm going to talk primarily about the second, about how, what actually happens in experience. But I'll say a, a word about the first, what we bring to experience. The Buddha said that we actually typically, particularly if there's um, what he called ignorance, a kind of spiritual ignorance, a kind, not, not so much an ignorance of facts, but an ignorance of who we most basically are, which we all, in a sense, share in and probably wouldn't be here otherwise. We have a sense that there's both some understanding and wisdom, but there's a lot of ways that we feel obscured or in the dark or there are things that we know that we're confused in some ways. And the Buddha talked about that ignorance as being one of the, we might say, almost the, one of the unconscious roots of suffering. When there's ignorance, we will tend to suffer. When, and the core ignorance that was pointed to was the sense of being a separate, isolated self set against the rest of the world with the separate, isolated self basically spending its time trying to accumulate positive experiences and avoid unpleasant experiences. So that kind of ignorance is almost uh, of an unconscious level. And we bring that to every experience. As we cultivate mindfulness, in a sense, we reduce the ignorance over time. There's also, in addition to that core ignorance, there's what the Buddha called dispositions. We, we might say it's our habit energy. There are ways that we bring to experience, again, functioning somewhat unconsciously, uh, a kind of habit energy that will tend when something occurs for us to do something. You know, when someone, you know if, we're, if we've had, let's say, um, if I was, as a child, I didn't get enough uh, care and I f- have a sense of abandonment, you know, which is sometimes is treated psychologically. Let's say if I have a sense of not being there uh, or people were not there for me, I was, I was left too much on my own. And as an adult, I will come to every experience fearing that I will repeat that experience of abandonment. So if I'm in a relationship... I might become very nervous when my partner goes away for a weekend. It might re-trigger that fear. 
And so we all have some version of that, some version of kind of the habit energy based on what's happened in the past that we bring to experience. We also bring to experience the basics of what it means to be a human being. We have consciousness, which when you look at it, it's actually pretty mysterious. You know, it's quite mysterious. You know, I had my, have a good friend who just had brain surgery, and her consciousness was quite shifted just by some work on the brain. And it was, it's very, very fascinating that we're all sitting here and we're all sharing a kind of consensus reality. But consciousness and why something would appear this way is very mysterious. You know, other animals probably have a very different sense of reality. You know, I, I, I remember reading an article once, uh, What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain. And frogs, if, if there was a frog who came into this room, the frog would not see everything here like we're seeing it. Basically, if I remember this right, frogs' perceptual mechanism takes every incoming piece of data and divides it into three categories. One of the categories is something moving very quick, something small moving very quickly across the horizon. That becomes the basis for (laughs) sticking out the tongue. There's also another way that, remember, this what I'm saying is that every every data, everything gets translated into three basic signals. Another signal is large shadow coming towards me, which basically means... Let's get out of here. Something dangerous. And I forget what the third one was. But, but everything, I, else. <laughs> everything else. Something with reproduction. Something like um, good smells. <laughs> good smells coming, time to, time to act. <laughs> or something like that. So, so basically, frogs' perceptual mechanisms are extremely simple. And it's not at all like ours. And think of that the next time you meet a frog. You might think, here am I, Donald, meeting a frog, but the frog is dividing all the information about Donald into one of those three categories, which probably is going to be the second, which means leave. So, so we have consciousness, and we have a human mind and body, with all that that entails, and we have the six senses. And so the Buddha said that all of what we bring to experience can be more or less captured in in what I've just said, that is, a certain underlying ignorance, a certain kind of habit energy, dispositions, and then the basic um, structure of human experience, consciousness, minds, bodies, the senses, and so forth. So that's what we bring to experience. Then what actually happens in experience? When we encounter an object, and the object can be as simple as a sensation in my knee, basically when we encounter something at any one of the sense doors, and for in the Buddhist psychology, what we experience in the mind is also a sense door. So they sometimes talk about six senses. So basically when any object appears, and again this is simplifying, 
So an object might be a sensation in my knee. We could say that an object could be uh, an emotion. You know, I have a moment of anger. An object could be a thought. So when any one of these objects, uh, let's say when, when, whenever my consciousness and my senses encounter an object, there's some contact with that object. could also be an external object. We might say it could be the wall or a tree, and I'm simplifying here some, but just to get the idea. So there's some coming together of consciousness, a sense, a human sense faculty, and an object. And this is called technically called contact. There's some contact with an object. On the basis of that contact, and that that would be some kind of sense experience, on the basis of that contact, there is a sense that what is happening is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's an evaluative moment, so that every moment is taken to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So I see a tree, it might be pleasant. I have a moment of anger, it might be unpleasant. I have, uh, I just look at the rug in front of me, maybe kind of neutral, and so forth. Now here's where it gets interesting. You can imagine. We've, so far we've just prepared, as it were, the groundwork. But here's where the stories start happening. Okay? And here's where the action starts happening. This is why mindfulness is so important, because mindfulness helps us to be just with the moment of contact and just with noticing what's happening. Also noticing that sense of pleasant, or unpleasant, or neutral. If we're not mindful, what occurs? When there's a pleasant moment, if we're conditioned, we will tend to basically want more of the pleasant, grab hold of the pleasant. might be that um, one example that James Barrows gives that I think of is his son eating strawberries as a three-year-old. There's that sense of he eats the strawberry, and even before he's chewed just a little bit, it has this pleasant sense, so his hand's reaching out for another one. We do this when we're eating. We do this with other sorts of experiences. When there's the sense of pleasant, we will unconsciously try to grab hold to ensure that the pleasant continues, more or less. When there's something unpleasant, let's say when there's... a a unpleasant sensation in my knee, I will tend to push away the experience. I will tend to resist. I don't want this. When there's someone says something to me that is unpleasant, I will do the same. Whenever there's something unpleasant, when there's not mindfulness, I will tend to push it away. When someone, uh, yeah, when someone, let's say, um, says something nice, I will tend to be attracted to it, and so forth. When, when the evaluation is more neutral, I will tend to not pay attention. I will tend to space out. And so what the Buddha said in this model of dependent arising is that the usual process that we go through, if we're not being mindful, is that we just reach after the pleasant, push away the unpleasant, and in a sense, um, strengthen the habit energy. And so he understands this as a kind of cycle. 
when we just go through this, we continue in that way. What mindfulness does is it helps us to be with the contact, with the object. It also helps us to see the unpleasant, pleasant or neutral. Now, a further piece is really crucial. It's that not only do we grab hold or push away, but we also tell stories. And this is, this is where we get into the theme of papancha. And it, it's actually really, really fascinating. So let's say that I have something unpleasant happen to me. What t- might also happen is that I will start to tell stories, make interpretations based on the uh, based on not uh, based on wanting to keep the pleasant. When something unpleasant happens, I will tend to tell stories based on wanting to get rid of the unpleasant. So. In, and this is, this is pretty much what, um, what is called uh, papancha in the text. Let me see where this is. This is from, the, this is from one of the commentaries. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memories, and ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm the person. This is sort of when, sometimes it's said that when things get full-blown, papancha runs riot on the unfortunate person. But what we can see, for example, let me give some examples. So here's one example. One day I was driving back from Spirit Rock to my home. And this was when there was being work done on the Richmond Bridge. So I, the, when I got on the link between 101 and the Richmond Bridge, it was totally blocked up. And I sat there, and the traffic was blocked up, and I was, it, was a little, it was somewhat unpleasant. I couldn't notice the unpleasant. And then I noticed that um, there were some cars driving in the breakdown lane. Trying, apparently trying to get ahead. In other words, everyone's blocked up, but some cars were s- s- speeding by in the breakdown lane. This also, uh, for me, was um, unpleasant. <laughs> I, started to, I started to think, boy, they're, they're really selfish. And I started to reflect about how there's more and more selfishness in our culture. It's just getting worse. And I went with it. You know, I just, my mind started going in certain ways. And it was very, once the traffic got going again, as, as I went by, one of the cars which had sped by, I noticed, was with a car that had broken down. So there was actually, I was actually wrong. I was, on the basis of my unpleasant experience, I was, as it were, going way beyond what I could actually know. I was uh, making a lot of different uh, judgments like that. I was, I was basically caught in my interpretations and somewhat separated from reality with the, with the interpretations. Sylvia tells a, a, a story which makes a, a point that's quite similar. She once was wanting to do a retreat at the Zen Center, and she called up the appointment manager, whose name was Bill, and uh, Bill wasn't there, so she left a message for Bill. 
Then a little later, Bill called her back at her phone. She wasn't there. <coughs> then she called uh, the office for Bill again, trying to reach Bill. She reached someone else who said, Bill isn't here. And, and then Sylvia started to go into a little bit of papancha, and she said, I guess this means I'm not supposed to do this retreat at the Zen Center. And the woman who was on the phone said, no, I think it means that Bill isn't here. <laughs> so, so, in a sense, she was getting instruction in mindfulness, wasn't she? She was, she was being asked, just come back. You know, it's like that one of those detective, I don't know, who, who was the detective? I remember this from the movie called Little House of Horrors. Anyone see that? There's a detective who just says, just the facts, ma'am. It's, it's kind of, that would be, in a sense, the dragnet, right? That's, that's the approach of mindfulness, would just be to come back and to watch the way the mind proliferates. Uh, Jack Kornfield tells a similar story, which really shows this, there, a quite poignant story. There was um, a man who died, it was a number of years ago, and he was beloved, and his, his wife was really in great grief. It was actually a sudden death. It was a death in the middle of surgery. And she was really bereft and, and in a sense, um, looking for meaning. And she had one friend said, in my meditations, I can see your husband in heaven. And he's doing really, really well. And she, was, she felt good. And then another person came to her and said, I've also had a vision of your husband. And he is going through a hard time. His soul is going through a hard time. But he's, I can see him. He's, um, he's, meeting, he's meeting Jesus. And another person came with another idea uh, that said, I have vision of your husband and he's... Um, He's sitting with his family. And she was very, actually very confused by this because they were somewhat different. And everyone had a certain certainty to what they were saying. And so she went to Jack and talked with him. And he, and he brought it back to what do you really know? What do you, what do you really know and what goes beyond into a kind of speculation? And we don't know whether what people were experiencing but this question of interpretation really brings us back to this question of can we stay with what's present and notice the extent to which the interpretations are in a sense driven by our, our wanting or our fear because that's a lot of what happens, isn't it? That when we, in a sense, we bring to experience uh, so much. As individuals, we bring to experience, as I was mentioning, all these habits and a certain amount of ignorance. And when we encounter something, it's like we don't just encounter it directly, but it's like all of our, uh, in a sense, baggage is also there. There was, a, there was a, I remember there was once a cartoon which show, showed a couple on a date. There was the man and the woman meeting and behind them, each of them, was this huge bag. It was like three or four times as big as themselves. And, and they were, 
and they were introducing themselves, and there were these huge bags, and the poet Robert Bly talks about the long bag that we each carry behind us, which is the, we could call it the shadow, the habit energy, uh, that, which, that which is not resolved. And the tendency with that is it tends to take us away from the present moment into these interpretations, into these stories. And so in mindfulness practice, we are particularly instructed to be very careful with the stories. And of course, they happen all the time in meditation. And one of the things about meditation is it gives us a way to look really carefully at those stories. Notice, really could ask the question, what do I really know? What's really happening? What are my typical stories that I tell? Where does my mind go with a given stimulus? You know, and we might see a given person. We might, you know, we know that when we, um, when we have some difficult history with a person, what do we bring to our encounter with that person? Pretty much all of the history, right? We bring all of the history, and the person could do something really nicely to us, and we might not see it at all because we're, in a sense, we're projecting what we imagine there to be. In a sense, we probably live in a bubble of our own projections more than we think. It's actually pretty sobering when you look at it. We live in these stories and these interpretations a lot more than we think. And the intention of mindfulness is to come back to seeing more directly, come back to seeing how the stories proliferate moment to moment in daily experience with people we encounter, when we have either beautiful or difficult things happening. And, and so we could say, I'll, I'll just close by saying that practices which might be very helpful for us would be, first of all, to bring in, mind, in the practice of mindfulness this ability just to be with what's happening cultivating the quality to be very directly with sensations, emotions, thoughts, to notice them, and then to notice any tendencies to proliferate from them. And we'll particularly find this happening when there's something that is either significantly pleasant or significantly unpleasant. So to study, to strengthen the mindfulness, and to notice where our mind typically goes. Does it go like my mind went into pervasive planning? When I'm with a, diff- a person who's been difficult for me, do I mostly hang out in the stories about how bad that person is, how that person has wronged me, and so forth? When I'm with something positive, do my, do my, does my mind go towards wanting to keep what's positive happening and imagining, um, imagining how that might happen. When I see something pleasant, does my mind go towards how can I have that? And so again, it's not so much that the stories are entirely to be rejected. We need certain kinds of interpretations or stories, but they go, typically for most of us, they go way out of control. Again, in that language of the Buddha, they run riot in a way. And we often are quite far from immediate experience. And so this is why we train. And so again, we can practice cultivating mindfulness, noticing our typical stories, having an inventory of where our mind goes, and just noticing where we go, naming the stories, naming the interpretations, and seeing what's there. And then we can ask, 
how much is that uh, really going way beyond the immediate experience? So it's a big one, isn't it? (laughs) This is big. This is one of the beauties of mindfulness practice, that it can really help us to really notice that distinction between the direct awareness and where we go with it. It can help us much more easily to know which of the stories are helpful, which of them are old habits that I'm repeating. And I'll, I'll probably talk next week some about how we can actually take the stories, noticing the stories, and go deeper and see what's beneath the stories, because that's really what's important, to really see what's generating all these stories. It might be some unacknowledged pain that I have that without my consciousness is just generating a large part of my behavior. So it's a big one. It's kind of a sobering reality, isn't it, that we do this so much. But it's also fascinating, and it's entirely workable. I want to say that. It's really workable. We can, through mindfulness, notice these habits more and let go uh, increasingly of the ones that are not helpful. So I'll stop there and invite any questions or reflections or free associations, even a little bit of papancha. (laughs) Please. I was especially struck and pleased that you brought up the example of Jack Kornfeld when he was talking to this person, a bereaved woman, and him saying, um, well, what do you know? Because I've been struck recently uh, so much about how the dogmatism in religion has just yeah. been taking over the world. And it's, yeah. it's very dangerous yeah. that we're just using information from thousands of years ago and applying it yeah. and putting it on our cultures, which is really dangerous. Yeah. It's, this is a, a really big one. I mean, we could reflect <laughs> that um, we find this in religion where it really is, in a sense, many removes from direct experience, and probably from the direct experience of the founders of the religions, right? And so it's like a large percentage of people live in these bubbles which have very little contact with reality, in a sense. There are these bubbles that uh, may, in some sense, be helpful, but often, if they're not in contact with that sense of presence or reality, they can be quite harmful, And they also, people can live in those bubbles and have a sense of certainty and this is the right way. I actually brought in some material that I'm I'm not going to use this time about that I I was very struck in reading one particular analysis of um, the invasion and occupation of Iraq about how much there was very little contact with reality and in many ways the government just, and I'm I'm not meaning this to be partisan, I think all parties do the same thing, but that they were just imposing a preconceived reality on a particular place and having very little contact with actual reality. And I, and I, I, had, I was reflecting on that, but it, it, we can see that. We can also see in some ways how wars are, in a way, two opposite sides of papancha battling each other. You know, you know that... Often what happens when, you know, just, and we don't have to think so much of the complexities of political situations, but just in terms of a conflict between two people, there might be something really unpleasant that happens. Let's say I have an encounter with a person, 
and I have a really unpleasant encounter. Maybe the person is judgmental towards me and uh, says nasty things. I have a certain amount of pain from that experience. If I'm not in touch with the immediacy of the pain, I may tend to generate judgments right back to the person, have stories, this person is really sick, (laughs) or this person is really a bad person, why is this person doing what he or she is doing, and must be must be really um, a damaged person. I'm good. This person's really bad. And we encounter the other person again, and let's say we're in a situation where we have to be in, in touch with each other. Pretty soon, we can have very little contact with each other. It's just like two warring stories, in part because we can't actually touch the pain that's there. And so a lot of what the role of peacemakers is, is to actually touch that pain so that there can be some contact with reality and not being caught in the stories. So one thing to notice is in the areas that are difficult for you in terms of your relationships and conflicts, how much is there a being caught in the stories? And how much can we really touch the actual experience happening? So it's, it's a big one, and it's, it's sad that it's also is very true of many uh, religious traditions, that there's just this many removed from direct experience of reality. So these are big, aren't they? Mm-hmm. These are big ones. Yeah, please. So I, let's see, I don't know exactly how clear this is in my mind, if I can articulate it, but I get confused with the open mind, clear seeing, flexible mind, and and being naive and not seeing patterns that are important to put together, just like yeah. I was talking about the dogmatism and all that. Yeah. But isn't that a form of a plancha in a way, like our conclusions about, you know, organ, about so many religions, which I share those conclusions, yeah. but isn't that a form of my own, like, plancha? Like, so yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. Like, does this mean that we just don't think at all? <laughs> does this mean that we should just stay with direct experience of the senses and not think and not have theories and not have ideas? It's a, it's a good question, a really important question. Um, one key is to see whether there is reactivity. Because the problem is not so much the the uh, use of thinking. Obviously, thinking has an important purpose. None of us would be here without thinking. I wouldn't have given my talk without thinking. We would have just, I don't know, if there was no thinking, there would be no cars. I don't, we wouldn't have driven here. No one would have figured out the uh, system of signals. Um, I would have rung the bell and People wouldn't have known what it meant, and you would have just kept on sitting, and it would have been a mess. <laughs> and so, uh, so how do we how do we basically distinguish uh, skillful thinking from unskillful thinking? That's a big. It's a great question. It's a big one. So one key would be to see where uh, there's reactivity, meaning where do I where am I attached to my ideas, and maybe uh, aversive in a reactive way to someone else's ideas. And so what's interesting in Buddhism, Buddhism has plenty of ideas, right? Plenty of models, plenty of models of understanding. 
And what, what's interesting is there's a very interesting internal discussion in Buddhism in which they say, don't get attached even to Buddhist ideas. Watch out for attachments to any ideas. And so there's this famous teaching that the Buddha gave where he said, my teachings are like a raft to take you over the sea. When you get to the other shore, don't carry the raft on your back. It's a pretty direct way of saying it. So it's more, it's more of a pragmatic uh, question. So it's a question, is this, is this way of seeing helpful and in particular, am I attached to it? Am I using this as a way to think that I'm good and the other persons are bad? But then within that, it's, and so it really has to do with checking out one's motivation. What's my motivation here? So we might, you know, if we're, let's say, we're working with people who are suffering, it's helpful to have a sense of what the origins of the suffering are and how we might work with that. That could be a, a set of ideas. So, the, it's really, uh, so it's, it's not, uh, it's something which needs some um, discrimination. How, you know, so again, I, I would summarize, uh, when I watch my own mind, do I find that proliferation? What's, is there reactivity with my ideas? Um, am I proliferating? Or am I using... There, there is certainly a place for a skillful use of ideas and ways of understanding. But it's a great question. That, and that was, that was a beginning to answer that. Does that make some sense? So it's particularly looking to see... It's always, always in our practice we look to see am I um, coming to approach a particular area of experience out of um, a kind of compulsive pushing away or grabbing hold? which we can do with ideas and theories and so forth. And if I am, then I have to look carefully there. And I can do that with good ideas as well as bad ideas. I can, I can do that with... I can, be completely, I can be completely attached to meditation. I can wear a certain meditation garb and go around saying, I'm a meditator. <laughs> Some parts of the world it wouldn't matter too much, but maybe in Marin it... It's, <laughs> it would be seen more positively. <laughs> I don't know. Or, or, you know, or I teach at Spirit Rock. <laughs> Something like that. It's actually a big thing that people taking a teaching role need to look at all these attachments. It's, that's, look at the attachment to the ideas. Does it make us close to other people? So it's a lot of, a lot of good material here. So... We could say more there, but that's a good, I think maybe that's a start. Maybe last question, yeah. What you just said is so clear, and it's so unclear to me because we all make we all have rafts, and we yeah. create tremendous rafts the longer we live. Yeah. And a lot of them are invaluable to us. Yeah. And so when I get to that point where I go, do I drop my raft at this point? Look at this brand new. I find it very difficult because a lot of it I've been learned. I've learned to live by them. Yeah. I guess I can't even find a question for this because it's turning my mind so much. Yeah. It's sort of a tabla rasa, as they say. What do you go, completely open? Yeah, well, he's, he's saying that you drop the raft when you're completely liberated. <laughs> so it's, it doesn't mean that you drop the raft halfway through in the ocean, which I think is where we all are. 
So it's, it's really not saying, so he's saying, by all means, use the raft until you really have fully come to full freedom, which presumably none of us are at. But I think there's also a sense of being light with our, with our views and beliefs. But So it's not asking everyone to uh, give up everything immediately. Uh, and there are, there are some schools that emphasize that more. If you were in Zen, they would emphasize more the giving up of all ideas. The, the teachings of the Buddha has a place for what's called uh, right view or right understanding. And there's a place for that. So the question is again to see, um, it's really, I think the, the question is really to investigate all this and to see what's there. That's again really the, what we can do with the mindfulness. We can look and see, what, first of all, what are my assumptions, my stories? Are they useful? Am I attached to them in a compulsive way? Where am I coming from when I use them? So there's, so does that help some? Yeah, so it's not really, we're not being asked to just drop everything and be tabula la rasas with no stories. But we're asked to be careful with stories because they, especially uh, to see their connection with suffering. You know, as, as, when, as when there's a conflict or a battle and, and people are, in a sense, in their self-enclosed bubbles and unable to really be in touch with uh, lived experience. And I think we can probably know that from sometimes when we're like that, right? When we're just caught in some fantasy or some idea or some interpretation and some of the funniest stories are when we actually get woken up from those bubbles. You know, when we um, had an idea about someone and then this, the person acts in a different way, right? And so that's the level of, that we're particularly invited to, to look at. It's not to give up our sense of how to live wisely or how to, how to have an open heart, something like that. So it's a great question. It's a, it's a deep area. I, would you be up for another week of this? Yeah. Yes. Yes, okay. okay. And then what happens after that with Pascal is up to him. <laughs> uh, so let's take as um, a kind of support for our practice, let's see, let's take as a support for our practice in the next week a few things. One would be to continue to cultivate mindfulness. And in the meditation, see if you can start distinguishing the direct experience more and more from the various interpretations which which arise. Not trying to get rid of the interpretations, but just seeing what they are. Seeing what's there in the lived experience. That'd be a first thing to do in the meditation. Then notice if you can take uh, an inventory of the stories that are around a lot. Notice what they are. Again, not so much saying that they shouldn't be there, but just notice. The, the, the whole aim of mindfulness practice is to actually see what's there and by this powerful looking over and over again, get a sense of what is helpful and what is not helpful. So it's not, it's not saying get rid of all stories, but it's saying look into them see how they're working, and see whether they're helpful or not over the long haul. So I think I'd invite those two kind of practices. One would be in 
meditation practice and mindfulness, looking and seeing if you can even see how the moment of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sometimes leads to stories developing from them. So see if you can get to that level of uh, precision in meditation, and then be on the lookout for stories during the week and see what their relationship is to direct experience. How many would like to take on that practice in this week in some way? Okay. And we'll, we'll explore it together, and I'll, I'll take us a little further. There's some further um, development of this idea that I want to give that goes into a little more precision about... Uh, about the, uh, the, the ways that we proliferate. And then I'll also reflect on the questions that were asked which, uh, and ref- maybe reflect on those further because those are really good ones. Like how do we find that a lot out there in the world? What do, we, do we just drop thinking? And then do I, what do I do with the, the assumptions that have really been helpful to me in my life? Do I, am I supposed to drop those? So I'll look at those questions a little more. So it's a lot. Anyone feel like this is a lot? Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. So it's a lot. Take it at your own pace, and we'll, uh, we'll explore and come back uh, next week and look some further at this. And if any of this was too much or not interesting and you just want to meditate and be quiet uh, and just come to more presence, then that's very much, um, I think, very much respected also, just if that's what you feel in yourself. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or so to finish. So letting any insights or sense of where you'd like to to go in the next week be present, any intentions. So as we do typically, we... offer the fruits of whatever has been helpful from the morning. We offer it out beyond these walls, out for the benefit of all beings, for the healing, the benefit, the freedom of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.